Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons, where we've been looking at the major doctrines of the faith, and we have been looking at the law of God. Today, we are going to briefly consider the seventh commandment, which is, Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, since these are introductory lessons, one of the things I've been mainly focusing on in my lessons is just looking at the commandment itself, the language, and see what we can glean from it. Well, here it's short and sweet. Do not commit adultery. And so there's really just one word here to focus on, and that's the word adultery. So what is adultery? The act of adultery is when a married person has sexual intercourse with someone who is not their spouse. It can be between a married person and a single person or two married people who are not married to one another. Either way, the marriages of those involved are attacked and destroyed. And because this sin is so heinous, and because it is such a violent attack on the family, God has designated it as a capital crime. In Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. This also applies to those who are engaged. Verse 23 of Deuteronomy 22. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city. And you shall stone him to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Furthermore, if you keep reading there in Deuteronomy 22, you'll see that rape is also a capital crime. Verse 25, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one there to rescue her. And well, since we're there in that chapter, we find in verses 28 through 29 a distinction made between adultery and fornication. Fornication, which is voluntary sexual intercourse between two unmarried people, is not a capital crime, yet it is still sinful. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, and the man who lay with her shall give her to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her, and he may not divorce her all his days. And so you'll notice then, what is the difference between adultery and fornication? It's the status of the people involved. Is he or she married or engaged? Is he or she belong to another person by a marriage covenant? Joe Moorcraft then reasons, based on this, that adultery then is not a crime against property. It is a crime against the marriage covenant and against the family. An adulterer destroys two marriages, his own and that of his neighbor, unquote. Beloved, the marriage covenant is one of the earliest forms of covenant that God put in place between humans. God ordained that the proper place of sex be within the marriage covenant. It is a clear picture of the one flesh nature of marriage and is a source of great joy and not shame. We read in Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, points to this reality. In chapter 6, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. We see that adultery rips apart that bond within marriage. It is a direct attack on the marriage covenant and on the family. But not only that, adultery is a direct attack against God. We can understand it as an attack on God in two ways. First, since it was God who ordained the marriage covenant in structured society, the adulterous man or woman is essentially spitting in the face of God and telling him, you have no right to order society. You have no right to order the basic covenant upon which society is built. And beloved, if God has no authority there, he doesn't have authority anywhere. How many times have we heard from our pastor over the years? You destroy the family, the rest of society will fall with it. The marriage covenant is the most basic, fundamental building block of human society. Without families, you have no church. Without families, you have no state. And so to start there in the family and claim by word and or deed that God has no rights over that, no authority, is the claim that God has no authority over everything else, including church and state. It is a direct attack upon the sovereignty of God. And being a direct attack upon his sovereignty, it is practical atheism. As I've pointed out in previous lessons when we looked at the the decree of God and his sovereignty, sovereignty is essential to God being God. You remove that, you're no longer talking about the one true God revealed in Scripture. And then secondly, another way to understand how adultery is an attack on God is to understand the theological significance of marriage. All throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is likened to the relationship between a bride and her bridegroom. For example, we read in Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom, decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In Ephesians 5, verse 22, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the passage I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, again, notice the language here. Do you not know that your members are, your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See the parallel. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And then finally, there in the consummation at the end, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The relationship between God and his people being likened to the relationship between a bride and a bridegroom is so strong that the worship of false gods is called what? Think about it. What would be the parallel? If we are betrothed to Christ and we go after another God, in essence, another husband, what is that? It's adultery. Now, we don't have time to read all of it, but when you get a chance, read Ezekiel 16. There you have this amazing imagery of God pouring forth his wrath upon Jerusalem for acting as a faithless bride in her idolatry, a bride whom God had spread his garment over and covered her nakedness. He made a vow to her, declaring her mind a bride that he bathed and cleaned up and adorned with fine clothing and jewelry. And yet, verse 15, she trusted in her beauty and played the whore. And so we read in verse 35, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. So you see then how adultery is a form of idolatry. As summarized in an article on Ligonier's website, I like this. It said, adultery is a refusal to acknowledge God as the covenant Lord through the substitution of illicit sexual pleasure as a deity in his place. It is a violation of our relationship with Christ who takes his church as his bride and proves to be the husband 
who is never unfaithful. Now, since adultery is the only thing mentioned here in this commandment, one might think, oh, well, that was quick and easy. Let's move on, but not so quick. Remember, as we have seen thus far, and we will continue to see with each commandment, that each commandment is expressing a moral principle that extends much broader than just the one act of sin that is explicitly mentioned. The sin of adultery is but one sin that includes a wide range of other sins of the same species. The Old Testament itself bears this out, and you can read of those sins included under the seventh commandment. For example, in Leviticus 18, there you read about incest, adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality. But for sake of time, we can just go straight to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, where he stated, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now our words, Lord, our Lord's words here are very telling. Jesus here is pointing out the reality that all extramarital affairs start in the heart with lustful desires that are fed instead of being fought and resisted. James explains this process in chapter 1 in his letter, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Lust is the first step towards sexual sin. And let's be clear here. Lust is not sexual desire within itself, in and of itself. God created us with sexual desire, and it's perfectly fine to fulfill that desire lawfully within the marriage covenant, as we read in Genesis 2. Nor is lust the mere recognition of physical attractiveness. The Bible points out the physical attractiveness of people throughout it. Instead, lust may be defined as a desire to engage in or to enjoy illicit sexual activity. And thus, given this definition and the reality of where lust begins, as we read from Jesus, we now understand why our catechisms broaden this commandment out in the way that they do. We read in the larger catechism, question 138, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The duties required are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those who do not have the gift of constancy, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. And the sins forbidden, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lust, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, and resorting to them, Entangling vows of single life, 
undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. Or to put it shorter, it requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And it forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. Beloved, God commands us to pursue, to preserve, and to protect purity in mind, body, affections, words, and behaviors in ourselves and in others. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so I end, beloved, with something I said in a previous lesson on this commandment. It matters what you do with your body. It matters what you say to people. It matters what you do with your eyes and bodily senses. It matters who you keep company with, the type of friends you hang out with. It matters how you dress. It matters what kind of books you read, songs you listen to, magazines you flip through, and internet sites that you visit. And why does it matter? Because of 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. The ultimate reason why these things matter is because your body belongs to him. It's not yours, ultimately. And because it belongs to him, you are to glorify him with it. That's why you have it. God did not give you your body for you to do with it whatever you want to do. He gave it to you to use it in such a way that he is magnified, that he is glorified. People should be able to look at your life, to look at what you do with your body, to look at how you talk, to look at how you entertain, to how you dress, to how you eat, to how you drink, to how you handle your alcohol, how you dance, so forth and so on. They should be able to look at all that in all your life and see that God matters, that God is ultimate, that God is sovereign, that God's authority is recognized in your life in all areas of life. And to the degree that you show concern for how you dress and how you talk and how you behave reveals the degree to which you care about God and revere Him. Again, what did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 4? That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who... How does he describe it? Do not know God. How are they revealing that they know God? Because they can't control themselves in their own bodies. 
and act in the passion of lust. And again, in verse 8, therefore, whoever disregards this, that is, whoever disregards this matter of sanctification, who disregards guarding what you do with your body, your speech, your dress, your actions, and so on, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Beloved, who is your God today? To whom will you bow? You will bow and serve someone. That's not the question. The question is to who do you bow? Who do you serve? And one way we can figure that out is by looking at how you think, how you speak, and how you act. And that will conclude our lesson for today.